0: Welcome to the Littlestown Chapel podcast. Make sure to check us out on the web at littlestownchapel.org. Now, we hope you enjoy this message by Pastor Scott Morgan. It's time. It's time. We've been talking to last year all of last year, about this idea that God is on the move and that God is working in our midst. And many of you have seen God work this past year in your family, in your marriage, maybe in a relationship with someone else. You've seen them come to Christ or maybe there's been reconciliation or there's been a breakthrough that you've experienced or you've seen something happen where God has been working and helping you just keep at it and not give up and you recognize I couldn't have done this without the work of God, without the blessing of God, the help of God, God is truly on the move. You've seen that and you know that and we've been focusing on that all of this year. It's just a logical extension, an appropriate extension for us to say, well, if God is on the move, what are we supposed to do? We're supposed to act. We're supposed to move with him. It's time for us to join him. It's time for us to act as well. And you can think about this several ways. You might be thinking, you know what? There's a distance between God and I. There's a a gulf, a a rift, and I wanna get back to him. I know it's time to draw near to God. There's somebody I'm not getting along with. Maybe it's in your marriage. Maybe it's with a child. Maybe it's with your parents. Maybe it's with a friend or coworker. And there needs to be reconciliation. And it's time to go back and make friends again. Maybe there's a habit. Maybe there's something in your life that's just holding you down from moving forward spiritually. Maybe it is a a destructive physical habit that's actually enslaving you. You know it's wrong. You know it's destructive. It's wasting money, time, energy. It's breaking and destroying relationships, and it's time to stop it. But you don't know how, and you don't know what to do. Maybe it's time to deal with that hurt in your past. Maybe it's that time to deal with the attitudes that you just find uh, corroding and, and encasing your life, adding a fog when there needs to be clarity, and it's time to face that hurt and face those attitudes and get the help that's needed. Maybe it's time to speak up. Maybe it's time to shut up and be quiet. Maybe it's time to stand up and take responsibility for something. Maybe it's time that God has been working in your life and calling you and challenging you to a ministry and maybe it's time to say, God, here I am, I sign up. I'll do what you want me to do. Maybe it's time to take a a risk, a holy risk, something that God is challenging you, calling you to do and you're scared to death to do. Maybe it's time to put those fears to rest finally that God is sufficient to provide everything you need to do His will. I don't know what time it is exactly for you, but I do know it's time to trust God and act if He's calling you to do something in your life. Our fears stand in the way. Our distractions make us think that we don't need to do that because I've got more important things to do except that one thing. It might be take time and say it's time to act and get my health under control. Get my finances under control. Get my relationship, my sleep, my time management under control. Maybe it's time to get an idea of the future, of where I'm going. Maybe it's time to settle that question once and for all. Where are you going to go when you die? I don't know what time it is exactly. But God wants you and I to act in faith and deal with those things with his help. The distractions keep us away from it. The fears keep us away from that. Ignorance. We don't like to say we're ignorant, but sometimes I just don't know the next step. I'm not sure what to do. And that ignorance stifles me. It keeps me from really moving forward. And maybe it's time just to get the information you need to be able to make an intelligent decision to move forward spiritually. I don't know. But God says it's time. There's a passage of scripture that's really very beautiful that describes the timeliness of its time. And that's found in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. And Frank, if you'd show the, the title slide, we're just gonna say it's time for salvation. It's, it's time. Because the beauty of it is it's, it's time to act on all these things because God is waiting in the wings to come to the rescue. God is standing there and he's ready to help. He's ready to save, he's ready to come and be involved and help you do the things that he's calling you to do. It's time, yes, because he's there to save. It's time to move and trust and act because he's there to help. And when we understand that and see that, it gives us the courage and resources and strength that we need to truly move forward. Now, I want to encourage you to take your Bible and turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2. And that's where we're going to be reading. This is on page 966, 966 if you'd like to follow along. But as you're turning there or looking it up on your smartphone, I, I just want to set the context a little bit for where this is. This is the second letter that the Apostle Paul, early leader in the the first century church, he's written to this group of Christians that were living in ancient Greece in the city of Corinth. Corinth was like Los Angeles, Las Vegas, and New York City rolled into one. And it was a very wild and woolly trading town, university town, uh, cultural center. And the Christians there just struggled to really identify with Christ and and live a holy life, a a God-honoring life of peace and, and joy with one another. And the first letter that Paul wrote to them, he was trying to answer a bunch of questions they had about the resurrection, about spiritual gifts, about ethics and other issues like that. And so he tried to quell their concerns and answer their questions and do all of that. And they reacted to that letter and kind of pushed back and said, I'm not sure we need your help, Paul. Thank you very much. I I think we can handle this ourselves. We've got it figured out. And Paul was recognizing that they couldn't be so stubborn to think that they could handle their problems by themselves. None of us can recover. None of us can change. None of us can move forward spiritually by ourselves. We desperately need to do it as a team, do it with one another in community. And so Paul writes this second letter, the second letter that we have recorded here in the New Testament, 2 Corinthians, and what he does is he spends most of the letter talking about the nature of his ministry and how much he loves them and how he cares for them and what sacrifices he's made for them so that they would not only, under, so that they would not only see that they need him but how much he loves and cares for them. And in the middle of this whole discussion in 2 Corinthians, we get to chapter five and Paul is describing his ministry to them and ministry in general, the philosophy of his ministry. And Paul says, I see myself as an ambassador. I am representing the kingdom of heaven to earth And I am God's ambassador coming to you, and I'm appealing to you and begging to you to be reconciled to God. And I imagine people would be hearing Paul say that kind of stuff and saying, wait a minute, what do you mean I need to be reconciled to God? I thought I was okay with God. I thought God and I were kind of tight. What do you mean I need to be reconciled to God? And the answer to that question is this, is that as you see in 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, and all throughout the Bible, We see very clearly that we are aliens toward God, alienated from God because of our sin. We're separated from him. We're actually called the enemies of God. Yes, he created us. Yes, he loves us. Yes, he did all of that. But there's a sense where because of our stubborn rebellion and refusal to do his will, that's called sin, we're his enemies and we need to be reconciled. And so here's Paul on a peace mission going to the people there of the ancient world telling them the good news that Jesus Christ is the one who died for them on the cross, that he took their sin even though he was innocent and sinless and he was willing to suffer for them even though he didn't deserve to die and didn't deserve to be tortured in any way and he was willing to bear the wrath of God, the judgment of God even though he had done everything perfectly to serve God and do God's will as the Son of God. He endured all that, and he did that to be our substitute, to be our sacrifice, so that now, instead of deserving God's punishment and judgment, that all fell on Jesus. And God's righteousness and love and full acceptance falls on us. And that's the message that Paul was preaching. That's pretty good news, don't you think? And that's what he was declaring, and that's what he was saying. And so when you get to the end of chapter 5, the Apostle Paul is saying, be reconciled to God. Be reconciled to God. That's what we're trying to tell you. And he's saying to the Corinthians, don't forget that this is what I'm trying to get you to do is just get right with God and be reconciled with him. And he's implying very strongly, if you throw me out, you're kind of throwing the Lord out too. You can be reconciled to God and be at peace with Him. We're going to look at chapter 5 in more detail a couple weeks from now, and it's really exciting to unpack it. But when we get to chapter 6 and verse 1, he describes himself, and he says, we're working together with Him, with God. We're trying to help people get reconciled to God, and we're we're partners with Him. We're co-workers with Him. We're on the same team. And we're working together with Him, and because we're doing that, We appeal to you not to receive the grace of God in vain. Don't waste the grace that God is pouring out on you. I know some of you, when you think of the word grace, you're thinking of a girl that you knew in school. She was called Grace. Or maybe some famous movie actress or somebody like that, Grace Kelly. Or maybe you're thinking about the prayer that you say at dinner. Will someone say, Grace, please? And you pray and, you know. I almost said, now I lay me down to sleep, but I'm thinking about bedtime, not dinner time. so I'm sorry. But that's not what he means when he says grace. He's talking about all the riches that God has for you, all the blessings that God has for you, all the resources that he has for you, everything that you need that you don't have but desperately want and desperately need. His power, his wisdom, his resources, his encouragement, his support, the scriptures, his forgiveness, his acceptance, all this is his grace. Did you ever memorize this little acronym? You know, Christians are fond of acronyms, but, you know, G-R-A-C-E, grace, remember that? God's riches at Christ's expense. Very good. That's good. Your Sunday school teacher did a good job teaching you that. God's riches at Christ's expense. That's a very simple little acronym that explains what God's grace is, that God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches available because of Christ's expense. His expense, he went to the cross and died for us, rose from the dead. He did that so that we have all these resources from God. Divine operating assets are now available to us because of what Christ did. Paul is saying, in my ministry, I'm trying to help you understand the grace of God and experience the grace of God, and I'm worried that you're going to waste it. I'm worried that you are gonna receive it in vain in the sense of you're gonna take it and then not use it. Now, in our family, in our marriage, there's one person in our marriage that when they get a gift, they like to use it immediately. If you get a gift card, you use that gift card and you go out to dinner. You use that gift certificate and you go cash it in. If you get a financial gift, it burns a hole in his pocket and he needs to go and spend it. He needs to do that, do something with it. It cannot just sit around because that's not what the gift is for, just sitting around. But then there's another member of our, our family who remains anonymous today because she is not here to defend herself. <laughs> that when, when she gets a gift, she hangs on to it because you savor the gift. You treasure the gift. You think about the gift, they love me. I got a gift from them. This is one, I can't wait to use that gift sometime, but I'm not gonna do it right now. I'm gonna save it. Okay? That's what makes the world go round, okay? Now, the one person gets the gift and he uses it immediately and it's easy to forget that you got the gift because you used it. The other person uses the gift and it's easy to forget that you got the gift and you never use it. We have skiing lessons that we have never used. In fact, it's expired because we never cashed them in. Now, it didn't help the one winter there was no snow when we had the gift certificate, but we never got to do I still don't know how to ski. Some of you are imagining that. I did ski one time and all I did was cartwheel down the hill and I said, I'm done. I am done, this is too dangerous. There is a sense, and you know what? I just wanna say this for the sake of marital happiness and tranquility, because you're gonna go talk to the other member of my marriage. <laughs> Both ways are good in dealing with gifts. They're appropriate. I just wanna say, we're going to. can't we just get along? but Paul is saying to the Corinthians you have these resources from God and you're wasting it it's in vain that Jesus died for you to give you these things because you're not cashing them in and you're not using them you have the grace the gift of God to fight against sin and break sinful habits. You have the grace to experience forgiveness and acceptance. You have the grace to study and learn the Word of God. You have the grace to be able to go and do the ministry that God is calling you to do, to forgive one another, reconcile with one another. You have the grace available to do all this. And you're wasting it because you're just letting it sit there and you're not using it. And in all of this, Paul is challenging them and he kind of comes to a bit of a climax here in verse two. And this is where we're gonna sit down and and talk about it even more right now because in verse two he's saying this is why you must not waste the grace of God in your life why you need to take advantage of the and cash in these divine operating assets that Jesus Christ has generously provided for you would you read verse two with me For he says, in a favorable time, I listened to you. And in a day of salvation, I have helped you. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. This is God's word. And we need to listen carefully to what it says. The Apostle Paul in all of this is challenging us to utilize the gracious resources that God has provided for us because today is the day of salvation. Now is the time. It's time to do what God is calling you to do because he's right there to help you. He's right there to come to the rescue. He's right there to hold you up and sustain you and keep you and provide for you and save you so that you can do, go do what he's calling you to do. Today's the day, now's the time because God's there to rescue you. Now, what we're gonna do is just spend some time meditating on and reflecting on what 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse two says. This is a good verse to memorize and just reflect on. But the way we're gonna do it is we're gonna start at the end of the verse and work our way to the front of the verse, okay? So we're gonna start with that word salvation. It's the day of salvation. And he talks about getting saved and a day of salvation and things like that at different times. And it's important for us to really think about what this means when it says that God wants to save us or that Jesus saves. My friend, Denny Mazenouf, who lives up in Quebec, Canada, loves the Montreal Canadiens, the great hockey team. And he has a picture in his dining room it's very sacrilegious, but it's hilarious, okay? And, and I think it's, yeah, I'm sorry, what does that say about me? But it's a, it's a picture of a goal in hockey, and, and the goalie's wearing the, the goalie pads, and he's got the big goalie stick and the big goalie glove, and who is the goalie? It's Jesus. I mean, it looks just like the Jesus from the paintings. And he's catching the puck just like that, and it says underneath, Jesus saves, And other people say, well, you know, when we say, you know, Jesus saves, are we saying that he has a banking program? What kind of interest does he give? And, and I say I'm saved, or you say I got saved. And, you know, what do we mean by that? And we say it so often that it sounds so familiar, but what does it really mean when we say salvation or that I got saved? And it simply is a a set of words in the New Testament just means that God came to the rescue and you let him rescue you. You saw the need to get rescued and you asked him to rescue you. That is a very humbling thing. I remember my senior pastor, the first church, my first boss, first church I served at many years ago talked about going to the Ocean City with his family and as they went to the ocean, he was out there swimming and he'd gotten a little too far out and he started getting a cramp in his leg and he was kind of in, a, not over his head, but you know, it was too hard to get back in. And he said, it was the most embarrassing thing I ever had to do. I had to raise my hand and ask the lifeguard to save me. And the lifeguard chucked on out and came out and he didn't say, just stand up or you know anything like that. It, he came right out and he pulled him back in and that was fine. He was saved. His, he wasn't drowning, but he could have drowned because he couldn't get back in. It's a humiliating, embarrassing thing to say, you know, I need to get rescued. And part of the problem is is that we live our lives as Christian Americans and we say, I'm fine, thank you very much. I've got this. I'm under control. I'm okay. And I don't like to admit that I'm in desperate situations, and yet, That's exactly the message of the Bible about every single human being everywhere on planet Earth at any time. We are all in desperate straits and we desperately need a God to come to our rescue because we cannot save ourselves. We have too much guilt. We're too weak morally. Our self-control is not strong enough. Our moral fiber is not strong enough. We don't handle grief well. We are hurt been hurt badly, and we've had significant losses, and we're helpless, and the standard's perfection, and we all fall short, and we desperately need somebody to come to the rescue, and so we have to admit that, that we need to be rescued. We need someone to come to our aid and save us. We really do. I want you to look at this verse. Show the next one, Frank. So in the book of Acts, there's this story of some of the early Christian leaders, Peter and John, two of Jesus' disciples. Jesus has already died on the cross and ascended into heaven after his resurrection. And Peter, John, are, and John, and the early Christians are just faithfully serving Jesus, and they're preaching the gospel, and they're at the temple in Jerusalem one day, the holiest site in all of Judaism, and they're there at the temple that day. And as they're going along, there's a fellow who's begging and asking for money. He's, he's crippled. And he needs some money because that's what he does to make a living. He's living off of handouts. He's a panhandler. And he cries out, Peter and John, can you give me some money? Can you please help me like that? And Peter looks right at him and he says, look, I don't have any money. No silver, no gold, but I'll give you exactly what I have. And what I've got is this. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, I command you to stand up and walk. And the guy jumps right up, starts walking, starts jumping, starts dancing, starts everything. He's immediately healed. You get what Peter did? I don't have a handout for you, but I can heal you. Jesus doesn't want to just give you a little money. He wants to save your soul and fix your body. And so he did that. And so here's this guy dancing around, this cripple. He's now healed. He's doing ballet. He's doing tap. He's doing all this kind of stuff. He's just dancing. He's celebrating. He's doing cartwheels. I'm sanctified imagination, but just all of that, it was creating a commotion, creating a scene because the cripple, the panhandler, has been healed. And he's celebrating and shouting and everybody's cheering and Peter and John are so excited, this big crowd forms and they can't believe it. And Peter seizes the opportunity to start telling people about what happened. And what happened is Jesus of Nazareth has healed this man. Jesus Christ of Nazareth has come and touched this man's life and healed him. And in the name of Jesus, he's been restored. And you can trust in Jesus and you can have your your life restored as well. He wants to save you from your sins and rescue you and save you. And just as he's winding up his sermon and about to give the invitation at the end of that service, who shows up but the temple police and the priests? And they're upset. And they arrest Peter and John, hold them overnight, and they bring them out the next morning for trial. And at the trial, the priests and the leaders say, okay, in whose name did you do this? By what authority have you done this? Who are you representing as you do this? That's what they're asking when they say "In whose name is this? And Peter begins to explain, well we did this in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Oh by the way in case you don't know who he is, you killed him. (laughs) That doesn't win any points with the the court, okay? You killed him, but God raised him from the dead. God raised him from the dead. And he healed this man? So are we on trial for healing a cripple? An invalid who, who was just panhandling and now he can leap and dance and run? Are, you, are, we on, are we in trouble for that? That doesn't make sense. But we did it in the name of Jesus. So yes, that's what's happened here. And they're upset. They don't like that. They want the guys to stop. But Peter and John say, look, This salvation that came to this man, this healing that we're offering to this man and anyone else, and this salvation, the forgiveness of sins and restoration and reconciliation with God that we're offering to anyone who is listening to us. Listen, Jesus is the only one who can provide that. It's not us. It's Jesus. And so listen to what they say. And there is salvation in no one else. the context is is jesus no one else other than jesus for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved he's the only one that does the saving it's jesus who died on the cross for our sins and who was raised from the dead he is alive forevermore he is the savior the rescuer who comes to deliver and save anybody who cries out to him for help, who cries out for, in faith asking him to rescue them. He will come and do that. And that's what Peter and John boldly say there. And so you and I need to understand that this salvation that 2 Corinthians 6, verse 2 talks about, that it's a favorable time, a day of salvation, it all revolves around Jesus. You don't save yourself, you can't. I can't. This church can't save you. None of the political parties can save you. Your education will never save you. Your money is, doesn't have the capacity to save you. There's no doctor or psychologist or counselor, no priest, rabbi, pastor, bishop. No one can save you. It's only Jesus Christ. He alone is the Savior. So anyone who trusts in Him can be forgiven of their sins and accepted by God and reconciled to Him. And when you and I ponder this, we realize that the salvation that Jesus provides, and we see this throughout the Scriptures, is bigger than just, oh, I get to go to heaven because I was saved from hell. I don't have to go to hell. So glad. But I'm going to heaven. It's bigger than that. He saves us from our fears. He saves us from the the tension and fighting and animosity that we naturally have, the natural hostility we have with God. He he reconciles us to God. He he gives us the confidence so that we don't have to be afraid. He he takes away, He saves us from our guilt and shame and, and forgives us. He adopts us into His family so we can belong. And we don't have to ever think that I don't belong and I'm a nobody and nobody cares. Nobody values me. Nobody notices me. No, you're the apple of God's eye and he sees you and he loves you because you're part of his family when you trust in Christ and he saves you. He does save you from eternal wrath and takes you to heaven one day in the future. He saves you by joining you to Christ's life so that Christ lives in you and you live in Christ and you share his life and that is yours. He saves you by giving you total, complete victory over sin, death, and the devil. Jesus is the victor, and he won salvation for you by being victorious over the evil one who sought to destroy you. He'll save you from yourself. Your anxieties, your worries, your fears, your confusion, your ignorance, your foolishness, he will save you and I. I have all that stuff too. He saves us from that. And He comes to the rescue with His wisdom and His grace and His truth and His peace. He shows us reality. He brings us salvation. He gives us a relationship with Him. So when we talk about, when 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 2 talks about it being a day of salvation, that's what He's talking about. But there's this other question and this is just something else to think about here. One more verse I want to show you before we move on. In Hebrews chapter 2 verse 3 the writer of Hebrews just asked this question. This is a question I have to ask you. I have to ask me. How will we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? How will you escape? And the writer of Hebrews is trying to get across this point. There is no escape because you cannot save yourself. Your parents and your heritage cannot save you. Your education. None of those things will save you. You desperately need to be rescued, and Jesus is the only one who can and will do it because he's done it by dying for you and rising from the dead. How will you escape if you don't accept that salvation? There is no other hope for you or me. He alone is the Savior. Now, you probably are wondering, well, how do I know God would save me? And how do I know he would save me now? Why would he do that? Does he know how big a mess up I am? Does he know how much I've screwed up in my life? Is he aware of how much of a failure, how big a sinner I am? And the good news is this, is that your salvation doesn't depend on you, how good or bad you are. It doesn't depend on that at all. It depends on how good he is the Savior. And he is mighty, mighty good and willing to save you. If we back up a little further in the verse like we've been doing, he says today is the day of salvation. Behold, now is the favorable time. This is the right time for him to do this. This is the right time for him to come to the rescue. And you might be saying, but still, I don't understand why it is. Why is it the day of salvation right now? Will you back up a little further in the verse? And he says, for at a favorable time, I listened to you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. And you can kind of tell, at least in the English Standard Version translation that we're using here, that it's set off kind of funny because it's a quotation. It's from the Old Testament. It's found in Isaiah chapter 49, verse 8. And in that passage... In the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah is speaking to the people of Israel, and he's saying God's going to do a mighty work in your lives, O people of Israel. He's going to save you. He's going to rescue you, and he's going to shine his light through you to each other, but then also to the world, to the people that don't yet know God, the people who are pagans and Gentiles. They're going to hear the good news as well. And God's going to do all that through you. He's going to do it specifically through his servant. And sometimes at the end of Isaiah when we read about the servant it's talking about the nation of Israel and sometimes it's talking about the godly remnant of that nation and then there's some psalms or rather some passages in Isaiah that it's very clearly that he's talking about one specific individual who is like the servant par excellence the servant above all servants he's a suffering servant he's a suffering servant who saves I'm talking about the Messiah, Jesus. And so in Isaiah 53 and others, it's very clear that there's an individual who's dying to rescue the wayward sheep that describe lost humanity, specifically the lost people of Israel the Messiah giving His life and sacrificing His life. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to His own way, but the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. Why did He do that? To rescue us. It sounds like that verse in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 about Christ who knew no sin became sin for us that we might be made the righteousness of God and be reconciled to God. And so you've got all these concepts kind of going on. In Israel, a remnant in Israel, and. And, and the Messiah, Jesus, is the servant. And all that's going on here, and it's probably talking in this passage about the remnant and Jesus, the example of that remnant. And that remnant is given this job to lead Israel back to God, all the nation back to God, and lead the nations back to God. And they're wondering, how in the heck am I going to do that? How can I do this? And verse 8 in chapter 49 is what the Apostle Paul quotes right here. In a favorable time, I listened to you. And in the day of salvation, I helped you. And I think Paul is quoting this passage here, talking about something that was written at least seven, almost 800 years earlier. And he's trying to say, Look, I know God's going to come to the rescue and help you because he's got this track record of being a reliable savior. He's been doing this, rescuing people, helping people. This is not just something he's promising on a whim not really thinking about what he's doing. No, he's been doing this. And as he makes this promise and you know, uses this passage from Scripture, notice the two big things about how reliable God is as a Savior. He says, in a favorable time, I heard you. I listened to you. And that word, listen, there, it, 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 it's, it's kind of the idea of, of not just hearing, like, yeah, 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 I heard you, but you're cocking the ear, you're putting your newspaper down, you're kind of breathing quietly, you turned off the radio, the, the, the podcast, whatever you were listening to, the music, and you're just, you're kind of bending your ear down to, to listen. Oh, that's what you're saying. I heard you. And, and the, the point is, is I'm, I'm, he's listening to our prayers. He's listening to us when we cry out. And God is not too distracted or not too busy or too preoccupied. The noise of the universe is not so loud that God can't hear you when you pray. And he's listening. And he's hearing you. And he says, look, in that favorable day, I was listening to you. And I heard your cry for help. And not only that, he says, in the day of salvation, I helped you. I actually came to your help. I came to furnish aid, to give you the assistance that you desperately needed. I came to the rescue. Listen, you and I can cry out to God for help, and you can know for certain he's listening to you, and you know for certain that he wants to help you and will help you if you let him. It's not that he can't help you or doesn't have the the time, money, resources to help you, the the know-how to help you. He's got all that. It's not his, his problem. It's ours. Are we willing to let him help us? And if we're too prideful, if we say to him, I got this, if we say to him, I don't need it, I'm okay, instead of really admitting, no, I'm not okay, I can't defeat this habit by myself. I can't get rid of my sins by myself. I can't, I don't know how to reconcile myself. I don't know what to do. I'm, st- I'm embarrassed to admit that, but I don't know what to do. And God is saying, my child, I know exactly what to do. And I can help you. And I can show you the next steps you take and I'll do the rest. He's that kind of a savior. He listens, he hears, and he helps. He's ready to come to the rescue because he's listening. So he provides us salvation because he's a God who really has this track record of being available, being approachable, listening, helping. He's been doing that for centuries. And he wants to help you. But really the emphatic thing that the Apostle Paul is trying to say to the Corinthians and to you and me, He's trying to say to us is, now's the time to ask for this help. Now's the day to reach out, to raise your hand, to cry out and say, help me, Lord, Lord, save me. Now's the time to ask for that. And he, he emphasizes that twice. You know, Paul kind of summarizes there. Behold, now is the favorable time. Behold, again, in case you didn't miss it the first time, stop and look at this. Behold, that's what behold means, stop and look at this. Behold, now is the acceptable favorable time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. He says it twice for emphasis because so, he knew I would be thick-headed and miss it. And maybe you too. But now's the time. Now's the time to act on this. Not tomorrow, not yesterday, right now. This is the opportune season of your life. This is the time when God is working. God is working in the presence, in the present. A lot of us look wistfully back at the past, and go, oh, I wish it was like the old days. God is saying, You don't have the old days anymore. All you got is today. And a lot of us go, Well, tomorrow is when, or in the future, I'm gonna, when I have some money, when I have the time, when I get the training, when we move, then we'll get to do this. And God is saying, Don't just stare wistfully at the future. It's today, it's right now. So it's not, I'll break that habit when I have this or that or I can't break that habit because I don't have this or that anymore. No, right now you have everything you need by the grace of God and his power to break that habit. I would do that ministry in the future when I finally get that education or get that money or have my time open. Then I will go serve. Or I used to be able to serve but then I got kids and now I can't, I don't have time. God is saying, no, right now I have the ability to help you launch out into that ministry and take that risk for me. I can come to the rescue and help you. I can forgive you of your sins. I can take away your shame. I can reconcile you to me. I can help you reconcile with us. But it's right now. We need to work on this right now. There's no promise of tomorrow. We just have today. When we talk about now, there's the idea of availability. God is ready, willing, and able to help now. Not tomorrow, not yesterday, but now. He will help now if you let him. The idea of now, also, uh, it also comes across this idea of the fact that God, there's an urgency about it. And there's a sense of culpability if I reject it. If I don't act now, I'm sorry, I doesn't, don't mean to make this like some kind of times, timeshare salesman pitch or something like that. You've got to act now. No, but there's a sense in the plan of God, today's the day, I'm ready right now to help you. Why are you delaying and why are you putting it off? So there's this there's sense of urgency. I need to do something about this now because God is available now to help you. He's available. There's an urgency. There's a presentness. Not sure what the right word is, but he's present and he's there to help. There you are, you're on your bicycle. They finally took the training wheels off and you're pedaling fast and furious and he's running right behind you to catch you if you fall. He's that that lifeguard, that coast guard, just orbiting, orbiting in station above where that ship is sinking, ready to lower the line and lowering the line to, to rescue Those sailors, they're going to drown in that storm. He's there, the paramedic waiting at the firehouse to come to the rescue. Those are all pictures of what your heavenly father is doing, how he's ready to save and rescue. On call, 24 seven, 365. Always listening, always ready to help. He's there now to rescue if you're willing to trust Him. This is so important for us to see, so important for us to act on. There are three things I want to leave you with, three very important things to think about when we say it's time. It's time to let God come to the rescue. There are folks here who have gone to church all their lives and yet they've never trusted Christ. There are people who have, you know, been religious. They know the songs. They can quote the scriptures. They can tell you where the books of the Bible are. They can maybe even teach a lesson or do a ministry. But they've never personally believed. And today is the day to believe and to ask Jesus to save you. If you know in your heart that you are not a child of God and you've been waiting for the right time to trust in Jesus because I don't want to I don't want to embarrass myself admitting that I've been here all these years but I'm not saved. Today's the day, now's the time. You might not have tomorrow and I don't mean to sound morbid and trying to scare the quote the hell out of you. But indeed I am. That's what I want. And if it frightens you to act, that's not bad. That's not always bad. So today's the day to trust in Christ if you've never trusted Him. And I'll be up front here, and if you'd like to pray with someone, pray with me. I'd be glad to talk with you about it, explain what it means to trust Christ. And you could be saved today. You could enter into this new relationship with Him. Some of you are saying and thinking this, well, you know, this is nice, but I'm already saved. I'm saved. I've been saved. I've been saved for a long time. I want to challenge you. Do you really understand what that means? Do you really understand the richness and depth of what it means to be a saved person? Are you looking at it as a transaction? I prayed a prayer and Jesus saved me and it's just this little transaction we engaged in? Or has it actually transformed your life? Has it really changed you? And I am convinced that one of the ways that will change you is if you and I got a bigger picture, a clearer, sharper, high-definition picture of what is all involved in salvation. And I'm excited because in spending some time extra time in the New Testament just thinking about salvation, I'm beginning to see that there are all these metaphors, all these vivid word pictures to describe what salvation is is like. It's like adoption. It's like reconciliation. There's another 50-cent Bible word, redemption. And we use that in Westerns and gangster stories and things like that. But do you know what redemption is? It means to buy somebody out of slavery and set them free. And that's a picture of salvation. Who wants freedom? I do. I do. Who needs to be free? Me. Who's enslaved naturally? Me. Redemption. Salvation's about freedom. Salvation is about peace. Tranquility and serenity with God, but also in your soul. Salvation is about being reconciled to God and then experiencing a reconciliation with other people as well. Salvation is about finally settling the question of your eternal destiny. Do you have a will? That's nice. Do you have a life insurance policy? That's great. Have you made living will arrangements for your end of life care? Have you done those types of things? Have you prepared for retirement? That's wonderful. What about when you die? Have you settled where you're going? Are you going to heaven or not? Why leave that to chance? Salvation's about a home in heaven. All of these are very vivid pictures. Some we're familiar with, others we're not as familiar with. But this fall, we're going to be looking at each one of those and exploring what it means to really have salvation in that realm of our lives. And what you and I are going to learn as we do this, it's so exciting. I I can't wait, to, Pastor Josh and I, to share these things with you because I tell you, it's not just about that transaction. It's about the transformation. It's about what salvation does in my life today and how it changes me. And so I encourage you to come back next Sunday and the Sunday after that to grow in your understanding of the the beauty of the salvation you have in Christ. But I ask you to do one more thing. This is the third thing, and I'm excited about this one too. I'm asking you to consider inviting a friend to come along with you when you come back next Sunday or the, the week after and the weeks to come. Just invite them to come along. Maybe they're lost. Maybe they're looking for a church. Maybe they, they don't know the Lord. Maybe they have a great need for the salvation. They need forgiveness or they need a, f- a sense of belonging or they need the freedom. Invite them to come with you. Maybe you've talked to them about the Lord. You're praying for them. Your heart's broken for them. But invite them to come. And I know it's crazy because you've got to get the kids here and get dressed and show up on time and you're not even sure you're going to be able to make it. But maybe that'll be a little motivation to get here yourself. Consider inviting someone to come with you, someone you care about. Listen to the message together, and then afterwards, this is the extra mile you can take. Okay? Take him out to lunch, take him out to breakfast, and talk about what you heard. What do you think of that? Did it make sense? And they say, that guy was entertaining, but I didn't understand a word he was saying. <laughs> and you know what? I'd love to hear about that because I'd like to get my act together and I could use some saving in that realm myself. But take the time to talk with them. Build that relationship with them. Share a meal with them. Say a prayer for them. Maybe invite them back. But every week, not only will there be a word of encouragement for every Christian that's here, but there'll be a word of encouragement and welcome to everyone who hasn't yet trusted Christ as well. And I encourage you to think about investing in your friendships that way as well. So you know what? Today's the day. Now's the time. God's on the move, and he wants us to act. And we can do those actions. We can make those choices. We can do the things he's calling us to do, the things that are hard, because he's there to rescue us. It's a day of salvation. Don't miss it. It's here for you too. Would you pray with me, please? Father in heaven, I wanna give thanks to you for the salvation that we have in Christ. And I wanna thank you that you took the risks, you came to earth, you gave your life, you sacrificed it all so we could be forgiven and accepted by you. And I thank you that this salvation, this rescue is available to every person that trusts in you. I ask that, Lord, you would help us to share that with others. I pray that that we would not hold it to ourselves, but that we would give it away freely. And I pray that we would claim it for ourselves and make sure that we've put our trust in Christ and that we're relying on Him. And I ask that you would give us a deeper understanding of all the riches and glory and beauty we have in King Jesus, our Savior. So I ask for your blessings upon my friends who are here today, these dear folks who've come to worship with us. In all of this, Lord, may we be drawn into your presence and do your will for your glory. And we pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.